Hi, and welcome to episode 8 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H. This is the Karma Sense Eating Episode, a skeptic's guide to mindful eating. Thanks for letting me back in your life again. On September 20th of this year, I had the great pleasure of presenting a mindful eating workshop at Dean's Natural Food Stores in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. In this episode of the Foodcast, you'll hear an excerpt of that talk. Now, there's a few things to keep in mind. As the KarmaSense media empire expands, this talk was visual and loses some of its oomph without the benefit of the slides. I created a YouTube version of the podcast as well that includes the slides, and I have a link to that in the show notes on KarmaSenseWellness.com. But if you're stuck listening to this while tooling down I-4 or I-75 or something, you probably can't watch a YouTube video. I appreciate your listening to the end. Those ads may be annoying, but they keep the lights on. One more thing. The actual presentation included audience participation in two mindful eating demonstrations. These were well received by the audience, but won't translate to this medium very well. So I took them out. When I come back after the recorded presentation, I'll give you some ideas on how you too can benefit from those parts that you missed. But for now, let's go to Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Thank you, and welcome to Dean's Natural Food Market here in beautiful downtown Basking Ridge, New Jersey. I'm here to present to you tonight Karma Sense Eating Practices, which is a skeptic's guide to mindful eating. My name is Dave Hellman, and I have the pleasure of talking to you on this topic for the next several minutes. Here's the agenda for the talk. I'm going to start off uh, telling you who I am so you know whether it's worth listening to me or not. Then we're going to talk about health and specifically diet fundamentals and why diets don't tend to work. We're then going to talk about what mindful eating is and its role in that particular question. And then we'll go into a couple of demonstrations on mindful eating practices and end off with some Q&A. So first of all, who am I? Focusing purely on my credentials, I'm a certified exercise nutritionist, certified personal trainer, and I'm also trained by Duke University in a field called integrative health coaching. My degrees are in psychology and in computer science, and because some people are interested in personal information as well, uh, I balance that off with the fact that I don't really like talking about myself very much. So for this presentation, I put together the picture that I thought would tell a thousand words, and this is it. And if you examine that picture, uh, I was 10 years old at the time, it gives you some indication as to the time frame when I was raised based on the decor and the high-tech equipment that you see. Also based on what I'm wearing and what I'm doing, you can tell that I uh, was probably not a very physically active kid. I was probably not a mindful eater back then. I was definitely a nerd, a big-time goofball, and not so obvious in that picture is my unbridled optimism. I channeled that unbridled optimism into a book that's called The Karma Sense Eating Plan. The Karma Sense Eating Plan is a guide that's targeted to make anybody, regardless of lifestyle, your personal obligations, or your value system, make you be healthier, happier, and save the world. And the Karma Sense Eating Plan itself contributes to that saving the world piece by 
donating all profits from the sale of that book to a charity called Alice's Kids. Alice's Kids is focused on providing school-aged children all of the opportunities available to them, regardless of income level. There are a lot of charities out there that will help low-income school children make sure that they're fed, clothed, and sheltered. But when it comes to so-called optional activities, like participation in band, in athletics, in field trips, or just making sure that the child can come to school with clothes, they won't get them teased, there are not very many charities targeted towards that, and that's where Alice's Kids steps in. Alice's Kids makes targeted donations directly to these children, maintains their dignity by not making big fanfare of it, and makes sure that those aspects of their lives are covered as well. Make sure that they can fully participate in their childhood. And it's amazing what potential these kids can reach when they're able to fully participate. The Karma Sense Eating Plan is also evidence-based. I am uber skeptical about the health claims that come from both the traditional medical establishment as well as from the alternatives, from the health gurus, the, the celebrities of the world. So I wrote the Karma Sense Eating Plan to be based on the science that I love, and it combines the best of the studies of nutrition, gratitude, and mindfulness while maintaining its goofy streak. Mindful eating has a prominent place in the book, and I hope that you conclude at the end of this presentation that mindful eating can be a catalyst to making you healthier and happier. And happy, healthy people are really the only people who could save the world. Now let's take a look at health and specifically diet fundamentals. There are many models like the one that you're seeing here on this slide that depict the factors, the all of the different categories of things that impact your health. I like this one in particular because it lines them up based on the ones you have limited control over versus the one you have significant control over. So for example, if you look at genes, you don't have much control over those. As much as we'd like to be able to pick our families, we just can't. But on the other hand, it's not like we have no control over those because once we're created, there are environmental factors that will impact our DNA, that can cause mutations, that can cause damage to the DNA. And most of those relate back to these other factors of health. The next one that you have some more control over is your physiology or your metabolism. All of the things that keep your body alive, that maintain your body temperature, that maintain homeostasis or the overall balance in in hormones, in your circulation, in your respiratory system. All of that is your physiology and you have some control over that based on how active you are, what kind of food you eat, and yes, even your mindset can control your hormones. Uh, some of those hormones are your fight or flight hormones, your adrenaline, and so much of when your adrenaline kicks in is purely based on your mental response to stress. So you do have control over those things, and it's these other downstream factors that drive that. The next two are physical activity and nutrition. And we could argue over which one of those you have most control over, but that would be a pretty dull argument. More important is just to really understand what I'm talking about there. So physical activity is certainly exercise, 
But there are other aspects that get categorized there and well. The opposite of physical activity, rest, and specifically sleep, should be categorized in those two. Definitely affects your health. And then there's another factor called non-exercise activity thermogenesis which, uh, thermogenesis, which I think is just a word that are strung together because it ends up with the very neat acronym of NEAT. And NEAT are all those other activities you perform, physical or not. So if you have a very sedentary lifestyle because you work behind a desk, then that impacts your NEAT or your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. However, if you have a more active job, one that has you on your feet all day, maybe walking up and down the halls of an office or hospital or store or something like that, then your need is pretty high. All of that gets bundled into physical activity. I think nutrition is fairly basic. It's the stuff that you stick in your mouth, primarily, uh, including water. And then your mindset is your attitude and your decision-making and all of the things that drive you from day to day. And of all five of these factors, your own mindset, what you think and what you choose to do about what you think, is the one you have the most control over. Not total control over, these other factors impact that as well. But you do have the most control over that. Now there's another item that I thought I should add and that is physical environment. You don't tend to see this in many uh, models of health, but your physical environment definitely affects all these other items as well. It makes a big deal whether you spend most of your time in a stressful, loud, crime-ridden, and polluted environment versus a peaceful, bucolic, stress-free, nature-filled environment. All of those, that it's going to affect your mindset, certainly, your physiology, and uh, your genes as well, as I said, because a lot of pollution can cause chromosome damage. Now the thing about these five things is they all are always working together. So if you think of them as dials, if you twist one dial, it, the others don't say static. They all adjust to maintain that homeostasis. So let's focus on nutrition. If you decide that you want to lose some weight and that you're going to take in fewer calories, that's great except for your body may choose to make adjustments in other ways depending on how you implement that nutrition change. So your metabolism may decrease if you starve yourself too much or alter your your mix of protein, fat, and carbs in a way that your body really isn't prepared to take in. You also might feel less energy and therefore be less motivated or even able to perform physical activity. And many of you know the concept of being hangry. This is in the mindset category. Being hangry. It's a contractions of the word hungry and angry. And it happens. You get start getting mad, start getting irritable when you're hungry. And all of that can be impacted by your nutrition. So together, these five or six different factors conspire. They add, multiply, and subtract, and divide against each other to bring the final solution of this equation back to homeostasis. So while you may be lowering down the nutrition knob, the other knobs are dialing up and fighting like they may, in the case of wanting to lose weight, of keeping you 
at the same way. And this is why diets don't bring sustainable weight loss, if they bring any weight loss at all. There are so many different diets and your friends keep talking to you about the great diet they're on. Oh, you know, I went low carb and I never feel hungry and I've lost all this weight and I feel fantastic and I have no cravings. And then you go ahead and try it and it doesn't work the same way for you. Someone else comes to you and says, well, I went Mediterranean. I pretty much eat high fat. I eat a lot of fat. I eat a lot of carbs. It's very filling. I feel great. It, I'm happy. I lose weight. My blood lipids are just, the numbers are just fabulous. And it's just a great lifestyle. And you try it and you gain weight. It's because these diets aren't made for you. And they don't recognize those six factors and how they apply specifically to you. They have this kind of outside view of the world that they force on you. They work from the outside in. Come up with these very specific rules that you try and implement. And when you do try and implement them, it's a disaster. You get discouraged. You don't have the same result as your friends. You ultimately give up. And you may be worse off than you were when you started. These diets back you into a corner. And if you don't follow them to a T, then you think there's something wrong with you. But there's nothing wrong with you. The diet just played with those other factors and the result of the equation was the same, homeostasis. And when you think about where all these different diets come from, it's almost like there's a random diet generator somewhere or someone's playing a special game of diet mad libs where they randomly throw in, oh, eat this food, eat it at this time of day, eat only this much of it, Make sure you exercise at this time before you eat that food. And there's some random combination that works for some people. And that combination almost is those six factors. Because in the end, it's not those six factors that you're really playing around with. It's how those six factors drive a much simpler equation. And that equation is the calories you take in is less than the calories you burn. That's it. And I know that really sucks to hear, and I'm definitely not asking you to count calories. It sucks to hear because it's impossible to estimate the calories you take in and the calories you burn. You may think you have a handle on it, but you really don't. Because when you look at what it says on your Fitbit, or you look at what it says on your treadmill, that these are the calories you burn, those are estimates. Those do not pertain to you. But there are only a few very expensive ways to figure out how many calories you're burning at any particular time. And on the calorie consumption standpoint, it's equally confusing. Because no matter what it says on that can of soup you're looking at, that calorie count is an estimate. And it's usually off by 20 to 30%. There is no quality control as it relates to that. And a lot of times the companies are tweaking those numbers by playing around with serving size and making them unrealistic. So they seem like there's less calories than you would think. And even in something that ought to be very simple, the calories in an apple. You look it up in an app like MyFitnessPal and it tells you how many calories in an app are in an apple. But that's wrong too, because it's an estimate. My fitness pal doesn't know the exact size of that apple. It doesn't know how much of that apple you're really going to eat, how deep into the core you're really going to go. It doesn't know how ripe the apple was, and that affects the calorie account. 
and it doesn't even know where the apple was grown, and that affects the calorie count. I am not advocating calorie counting. It is a great tool, however, for raising awareness of what you want to eat. It raises your awareness because as you're entering in your calorie tracker that I ate one ounce bag of Lay's potato chips and you look at the calorie count and you go, whoa! And then you compare that to the calorie count of eating a whole apple with a tablespoon of peanut butter and you say, gee, maybe that later one was a better, would be a better choice. Maybe I wouldn't be hungry an hour later. So calorie counting raises awareness. And what's another word for awareness? Mindfulness. Where does this leave us? We've got these six factors that are out there that are a fact of life, but we really have limited control over, with the exception of one, your mindset. And we have this one equation, very simple, but unmanageable, that drives what our weight is. Still, somehow, people are able to make that equation work for them. And sometimes it's through chance. They adopted the diet that, by chance, allowed them to master the equation. Or it's because they got control over what they're eating. They got control through mindful eating. So let's talk a little bit about mindful eating. Many people are familiar with this model of the brain. That there is a side, the left side, that is very logical and computational in orientation and the other side, the right side of the brain, is very intuitive and emotional. And scientists now know that that's not exactly right, but it's close enough for the purposes of this discussion. And if you'll allow for that model right now, let's walk into a scenario that'll be very real life for some of you and maybe not so much for others of you, but I think that with a little imagination you can picture yourself in a similar situation. So imagine you're into hour seven of your workday. It's been a really rough day. And this is about the time when you usually head over to the lunchroom and get yourself a hit of caffeine and whatever's in the vending machine that appeals to you. And you walk in and there's pay dirt. Because there sitting on the table is the remains of a leftover pizza that someone ordered for lunch a few hours ago. At this time, your brain engages in a dance, or more accurately, it might be a fight. Lefty and righty start arguing with each other, or at least making contrary points to one another. And lefty says in the most robotic voice possible, my eyes and nose recognize a pattern and Righty says, I can't believe I'm stuck in this soul-sucking place for two more hours. And Lefty says, I know that pattern. It is pizza. And Righty says, in a Homer Simpson voice, Mmm, pizza. And Lefty says, I wonder how long that pizza's been sitting out there. And Righty says, Mmm, pizza. And Lefty says, I only ate two hours ago. And Righty says, Mmm, pizza. And it really doesn't matter how that debate plays out. Because that's not what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is not quieting down the right side of your brain. It's not ignoring the right side of your brain. 
Mindfulness is acknowledging when each side of the brain is talking. It's the difference between being one of the boxers in a match, in a boxing match, and being a spectator. And if you think of a boxing match, who comes out the best for wear in a boxing match? One of the boxers or one of the spectators? Now before getting into the details of mindful eating, let's explore its counterpart, which is mindless eating. And here are some characteristics. You eat without transition. You're on automatic pilot. See pizza? Eat pizza. Or when you eat directly out of the container, whether it's directly out of the bag of potato chips or directly out of the refrigerator or pantry. It's when you're eating until you're sick. Not until you're satisfied or full, but you're already sick. It's about distracted eating when you eat in front of the TV, in front of the computer, or even in the car. I heard a statistic the other day that 20 to 30 percent of all meals are eaten while driving. It's about planning your next meal while you're still eating your current one. It's about sticking the next fork of food in your mouth and you haven't even finished chewing the last one. And it's usually in response to emotion, stress, boredom, fatigue. And that's what sets it apart from mindfulness in general and mindful eating. So I have a bunch of adjectives up now, and those are extracted directly from a book from the person who's considered the father of mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn from the University of Massachusetts. And these adjectives focus around fixed set to define what mindfulness is. For example, there's acceptance. Now, it's important to remember, acceptance is not the same as resignation. It's not the same as doing something and regretting it and saying, oh well, that's cool. Acceptance is about welcoming all the facts that define the current state and deciding what you're going to do about them. Other aspects of mindfulness and mindful eating is letting go. So after you make a decision, just letting it go. There's nothing you can do to change the past. It's not worth making a judgment about what you've done in your past. It's about being patient with yourself and trusting yourself. And another very important aspect of it is curiosity. Being curious, or what Zen calls having beginner's mind. It's asking, why do I want to eat that cookie? Will that cookie satisfy a goal of mine? And afterwards, did it satisfy that goal? If it did, great, I made a great decision. If it didn't, that's okay. What can I learn from this? How can I avoid making that same mistake again? That's what mindfulness in general is all about. And here on this slide you see an actual head-to-head -head compare and contrast between mindful eating and mindless eating. And I won't get into the details of this. I hate being one of those people who reads words directly off a slide. But let's look at those last two rows of comparisons. You can see under mindful eating, I refer to homeostatic eating. And it's not the first time I use the expression homeostatic or homeostasis. Homeostatic eating would be eating in response to the physiological need to eat. That physiological need manifests itself in physical ways and mental ways. As opposed to, you can see under mindless eating, hedonic. Hedonic comes from the same root word as the word hedonism, like that resort that people used to go to get their freak flags on when I was much younger. 
And much like that resort, hedonic eating is pure about the carnal pleasure of eating. If we go down to the next row of comparison, that works very well because hedonic eating is all about having a lust for food, eating for the pure carnal pleasure. Whereas mindful eating is more about a love for food, a love and a respect. When you master mindful eating, it ends up you get to do a 180 on this diets working on the from the outside in thing. Mindful eating does a 180 on the standard diets. It works from the inside out. So you're not so focused on standard triggers and cues that says, there's a plate full of cookies. I'm going to eat that plate of cookies. Or, oh, it's dinner time. I'm going to eat now. Instead, you're responding to your legitimate hunger and you're stopping eating when you're no longer hungry and you're totally immersed in the experience in between that hunger and satisfaction stage. So you're getting all of your senses involved in the act of eating. You're tasting that food, you're listening to that food, you're feeling that food, you're totally immersed. I know, that sounds very touchy-feely, but I gotta tell you, I wouldn't stand for a concept like mindful eating if it was just another frou-frou, tree-hugging, hippy-dippy, yogadelic, kumbaya-singing, rainbow and unicorn brand of wackiness. As I told you, I am evidence-based. Show me the research that says this stuff works. So I looked into that, and study after study proved that mindful eating makes you healthier, makes you happier, and more benevolent. Yes, benevolent. It can help you save the world. Mindful eating fights unhealthy conditions like diabetes type 2. It helps you lose weight. It does make you happier. It strengthens your relationships. It makes you more resilient, toughens you up. It gives you patience. I went through PubMed and through Google Scholar and I came up with 19,000 different studies that looked at mindful eating. I didn't read all 19,000, but I did look at a good cross-section and a significant body of evidence proved that it had all those benefits that I just listed. Sure, there were plenty of those studies that also said, you know what, it made no difference. And that happens in all research. You know what I couldn't find in any of those studies? That it made things worse. You got nothing to lose by taking this stuff on. So now, with that, where does it leave us? I won't drag you through the muck and mire of the six factors that affect your health and the simple equation again, other to say that the only thing you have control over is your mindset. And you have mindful eating, mindful eating that in the end, will help you eat slowly and stop before you're full. You eat slowly because you're focused on the task at hand, which is eating, and that takes time. You're not shoveling in that next forkful when you're still enjoying the last one. And you're really enjoying the food, you're chewing slowly, you're putting the utensil down when you're still chewing. And you stop before you're full because you know that full feeling is coming, and if you continue eating until you actually get there, You're not going to feel full, but about 20 minutes later, you're going to feel sick because that's how long it takes for those hormonal feelings of satiation to actually kick in. And this feeding ends up feeding back into those six factors. First of all, you start to feel in control of your eating, and that affects your mindset in really good ways. Second of all, you stop eating things that make you feel bad. 
It's no coincidence that the stuff that makes you feel bad is usually the very same stuff that is bad for you. And when I talk about bad for you, I don't only mean that it curbs your cravings for Twizzlers and Skittles, although it probably will. I also mean that it'll tell you what healthy foods or foods you've always been led to believe are healthy work for you and what doesn't. Now, gluten is a great example of this. You know, only about 1% of the world's population has celiac disease, and those are the only people who need to seriously be concerned about consuming foods that have gluten. Then there's about another 15% of the population that's gluten sensitive. They have what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. People with sensitivities often feel mental fatigue, bloating, and other digestive issues when they eat foods they're sensitive to. But those issues aren't seriously detrimental to their health. Most of these people actually have a different problem anyway. They're sensitive to foods that contain so-called FODMAPs. FODMAPs is an acronym for a specific family of carbohydrates that are in all sorts of foods, not only foods that contain gluten, but they're also found in many foods like fruits and beans and other non-gluten containing grains. People who unknowingly have a FODMAP sensitivity, who report feeling fabulous after dropping gluten from their diets, would feel even better if they dropped other FODMAP containing foods. If they master the art of mindful eating, of eating foods that make them feel good and wanted permanent relief from those symptoms, they'd sense this, that the FODMAPs are causing the same types of issues in gluten. And eventually they take up something that almost looks kind of like a paleo diet. Now I'm not advocating the paleo diet. It's a perfectly healthy diet for some people, but not for everyone. And I'm not claiming it's easy to get that kind of mastery. I'm just saying that ultimately mindful eating can get you there. And it's not just mindful eating we're talking about here. It's mindful eating practice. You've got to practice to make this stuff work. And that is my case for mindful eating. And at this point, if you're still skeptical, I ask that you take an open mind as we step into these two demonstrations that we're about to do. And at that point, we move on to the mysterious activity of the cracker and the grape. It was exciting for me to present some karma sense philosophy to a whole new and standing room only crowd in my old home state. It was great to see some old friends and exciting to meet so many new folks. If you missed your opportunity to attend these talks, go to the YouTube link that I posted. Also, drop me an email at davyh at davyhwellness.com and I'll send you a PDF with the slides and the notes. If you have a group that you think would benefit from the full talk and demonstration, let me know. I'm also available for weddings and bar mitzvahs, because what special occasion would be complete without me droning about eating slowly and stopping before you're full? Remember, the Karma Sense Eating Plan is packed with similar <coughs> wit and wisdom. It's available at Amazon and all major booksellers, and I donate all profits to Alice's Kids. Karma Sense Media Empire is taking the next week off, and I'll skip the next scheduled podcast. Talk to you on October 14th. Until then, remember what your old pal Bozo always says. What does your old pal Bozo always say? Just keep laughing.